Stephen. Hello, Stephen. How are you today? Well, I'm doing pretty good, all things considered. Good. Uh, me as well. I. That's, that's qualified, but sure. Yes. Well, it's uh, th- there have been times lately where I have stopped and thought about just exactly how fortunate I really am, rather than thinking about the things that I'm striving for and that I don't yet have or that I thought I would have at this point in my life. I've been thinking about, yeah, but look what you do have. We're so geared in North American society to wanting more and more. And, and, and underneath that, there's nothing really wrong with wanting to better yourself. Uh, I think that's, that's the motivator of human progress. But not often enough do we stop and say, yeah, but what we've got is pretty much okay too. It's okay to want more, but to the point where you're completely unsatisfied with what you already have, that's a bad situation, unless you're in a situation where really you don't have very much. And I'm yeah. not talking about that, but I'm, I think that most of the people who have the leisure time to be listening to this podcast uh, probably have some good things in their life that's worth reflecting on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I had great role models. Uh, my grandparents on uh, my mother's parents were the happiest people I ever met uh, because they had figured out the secret to happiness, which is they were happy with what they had. Uh, you know, and then they had, you know, times when, uh, you know, he, he fought in World War II. Actually, you know, he served in World War II. He, he never got overseas. He was a football player in the, uh, the Navy thought he was way too valuable to send over and actually fight Germans um, <laughs> because, you know, they wanted him to fight the, uh, the Army football team. Um, but, uh, but, you know, he, he, he was away from home for, for, for years in World War II. And, uh, you know, he had a, he had a blue collar job that kind of became sort of a dirty white collar job at Procter and Gamble, but they always were happy with what they had. Um, and I never saw them once say, you know what, we need a bigger house or a newer car or any of that kind of stuff. They were just content and they lived their entire lives that way. And they were, they were lucky. I mean, they, uh, Except for except for that uh, bit of unpleasantness called World War II and the Great Depression, um, mm. you know, after after 1945, that was a time of, of general prosperity, and uh, you know they were they considered themselves fortunate to uh, have what they did have, and uh, you know they counted their blessings all the time, and you never heard a word from them saying, you know what, I would be happy if I just had this, or yeah. money, or a better holiday, or you know, if I had steak three times a week or whatever they had, you know, my, my, my grandfather used to drink terrible wine, just awful stuff, but he thought it was great. Um, and so, you know, he had simple tastes and, uh, and a budget to match. And that's, that's what made him happy. Uh, you know, he, he's not in the Toronto, uh, uh, you know, they, they've both passed on, but, uh, you know, if he was in the, trying to get into the Toronto housing market, that might be a little different, but he would look at that and go like, I don't need to live in Toronto. I'll live somewhere else uh, where I can get, you know, a little house and a little garden and, uh, you know, I'll be perfectly content. Yeah. It, I, I remember uh, growing up, there really was this concept of enough. Mm-hmm. There was this concept of satisfaction, um, of being able to achieve satisfaction. And there was a certain level which was enough. And you might want to embroider above that, but if you didn't, you you were happy at a certain level. And that's gone away. It's, uh, you know, most people point to the 80s, but it's almost natural after the the 60s and the 70s, the 80s came, if you follow, you know, cultural trends. Yep, the greed is good uh, decade. Yeah, and, and 
it uh, it built so, and, and media has been telling us for for decades now that our lives are not complete unless we have this newest product. Uh, people run out and always buy the newest iPhone, even though their previous iPhone works just perfectly well. Um, it's uh, there's there's a there's there's something to be said for treating yourself, giving yourself a reward for hard work, because to make it understand why you're doing the work. But if it's not seen as a reward, if it's just seen as another thing to get on the ladder of getting more things, it doesn't really provide you any satisfaction. I wonder if people being uh, locked away from so many of their creature comforts for a year and a half will cause some people to have reflected on what do I really, really need here? Yeah. And, you know, and, and I've figured out that, you know, there's a ton of stuff that I can quite happily live without here. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you don't enjoy, you know, a nice night out or going to the movies or, or, you know, any of those sorts of things or, you know, or travel. Um, I used to travel quite a bit and I'm finding like, I'm not missing it that much. I mean, every once in a while I go like, sure, I'd love to, I'd love to go to and, and see London, England or, 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 some somewhere nice but uh you know i've managed i've managed just fine i think one of the differences too is in the post-world war ii era it was easier to be satisfied because your standard of living while it wasn't great it was sufficient i mean you could have a minimum wage job or a menial job and still pay for the things that you needed i mean there are lots of people who you know that, that who did live in poverty as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you know we keep hearing that purchasing power and you know the house and the cost of education the cost all of, of house, is, yeah all just, of that stuff has just skyrocketed while wages have stagnated a bit and now some people are having to work three part-time jobs a lot of precarious work out there now and it used to be you know my grandfather again worked for procter and gamble for uh, for 50 years um, uh, my, my other grandfather worked for Canadian press for 50 years. Um, matter of fact, my, my, my grandfather worked for Procter and Gamble, uh, was one of the first people to ever take for early, early retirement. They offered it and said, well, you'll get less money out of your pension, but if you want to go, you can go. And he said, well, okay, I'll go. And they said, well, no, we offer this, but we don't expect anyone to take it. <laughs> and he said, well, no, I, you know, I can live with less money. I can, you know, I, you know, I can, I can go on my little uh, ski holidays and live in my, my, my cottage, uh, north of, uh, more, north of Montreal and the Laurentians. Uh, I guess that makes me a, a Laurentian elite. Uh, the, um, but, uh, you know, but you could have a decent life and pay for things and watch your kids get ahead, you know, until, there's such a wage disparity that started that, uh, you know, minimum wage and part-time work, and, you know, started to eat away at quality of life where you didn't have a pension anymore. You didn't have extended healthcare benefits. You didn't have a lot of those things that came in in the sixties and then went out again in the nineties. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, we've been hearing about the fact that wages have stagnated and purchasing power has eroded for a long time. I, I, I just don't hear anybody in government planning to do anything about it. And, you, you know, it would, you would think that it would behoove business to want purchasing power to be higher because then more things will be purchased. But I suppose they look at it as in order for purchasing power to get higher, we have to pay out more to our staff. And they don't see that as either, you know, being a, a, a wash, you know, neither gain nor, nor loss or a benefit to to quality of life for their employees, which means quality of work from their employees, most most likely, um, 
and uh, they the economy just does better when people. I mean, look at what they're expecting now post pandemic. People have been holding on to their money because they've had nowhere to spend it, and they're expecting the economy to rebound like crazy because people are going to go out and spend. Uh, when people have money, you know, it's interesting because middle class people, uh, people of lower incomes, when they have the have money, they spend money. It's the rich who take their money and hoard it like yep. Scrooge McDuck. Yep, or and ship it, it off to Bermuda. Yeah, it, yeah, it doesn't ever re-enter the Canadian economy. It's 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 money that you might as well burn as far as the Canadian economy. It's the the, the super rich who uh, are the ones that are really, uh, you know, that, that miserly hold on to their money when they're the people that can most afford to to spend it and keep to keep the economy going. Uh, it becomes a gain to them when it's no longer income for for living purposes. It becomes a game as to how much can you game the system, how much extra can you make. They're divorced from the everyday realities that the rest of us face, and so that money uh, is removed from the economy. And there's businesses that have been sitting on piles of cash since the last recession. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, they call it dead money because it doesn't do anything. It's you know, it's passively invested, and whenever there, you know, they whenever there is. Well, we've seen this with uh, you know companies like Air Canada recently. When whenever the government gives them money, they you know they they turn around and they use it either for stock buybacks mm-hmm. or to uh, pay big bonuses, or what they do is they take that money for innovation. They retool their factories, such as there are in Canada, and uh, automate so they can fire a third of the workforce, or uh, they will close up operations entirely and find some uh, you know cheaper jurisdiction like Thailand or Cambodia or Vietnam where they can open up and. Uh, you know, make shoes there instead of making them in uh, in La Chute. Yeah, it's uh, it, you know as much as we have to to be happy about. There is a lot of things in this world that it's right in front of us. The things that need to be fixed, and typically things that are of large scale that need to be fixed. There's always what seems to be a simple answer, and the simple answer is almost always wrong. Yes, but people, but people still like a simple answer because you can understand it, and it gives you, you know, like a a a flag on top of a hill to to look at. It's the wrong hill that you're running for, but people people have always loved those simple answers that are, like you say, invariably wrong because the world is now such an interconnected and complex place that you know you throw a solution at a problem, you create three other problems that you weren't anticipating somewhere else that, uh, you know, that may be worse than the original problem that you were trying to solve. So, you know, it takes, you know, I, you know, I see uh, just uh, some grandstanding from our, from our uh, Ontario premier, uh, Doug Ford was saying, you know, Paul Bernardo came up for his, uh, for his uh, parole hearing, which is his right. Uh, because we have a system where, you know, people, you know, even the, the worst people and the faintest hope people who instinctively you go like, yeah, you should, you should throw away the key. Um, but, you know, our system is built so that people do get a chance. And, you know, the chance may be so small. I mean, I don't think Paul Bernardo will ever get out. But you know, he'll still... get out in a box. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the, uh, and especially if they let him into general population, the, um, because he's been in solitary uh, confinement for, for the last, you know, 20 years. The, um, but uh, the, you know, Doug Ford said, 
you know, they should just throw away the key. And it's, it's outrageous that they should still be having parole hearings with this guy. And he says, you know, the simple solution is to throw away the key. Say, well, yeah, it's a very simple solution for one particular terrible, terrible human being. But, you know, the whole system, of, you know, there's, there's so many things at work here, like politicians should not be telling the courts or the parole board how they should behave because we don't want politicians deciding who stays in jail and who shouldn't, because that's not what our system is based on. It's a system of laws that is divorced from politics. And, you know, the bigger question too is, well, we have the system of justice where we do give people an opportunity because there may be one in a million cases where someone is deserving of parole after committing something terrible, but, uh, you know, but, you know, Doug Ford just wants to throw out simple solutions, red meat to people who are going to go like, yeah, yeah, this is an easy one. He's a terrible person. It's like, well, there's all these, what do you do with all the other people who are up for parole? Some of whom may deserve it. Uh, um, you know, they may have earned parole after, you know, a terrible, wow. a terrible past. Um, but again, people like simple solutions and, you know, and it's just cheap politicking. I mean, that was just a, you know, just an example of, of uh, politicians just uh, appealing to the lowest common denominator on a, on a really low hanging fruit target. Yeah. I mean, that, that once again is uh, Ford speaking to the, speaking to, to base emotions that people have and people share. Um, he's, he's not an, he's not a particularly not demonstrated himself to be a particularly intelligent individual but he does have instincts uh, like trump these people have instincts as to how to motivate people as to what what uh, feelings they can stimulate and put themselves on the right side of and how to bypass any sense of reason and to have to, to have it in such a way that whenever somebody attempts to apply reason they look like a bad person because you're trying to use thought like, instead oh, you're of def a, you're defending Paul Bernardo. Yeah. It's like, instead no, of an, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, and you know, whenever you talk about the fact that problems, um, people would like problems to be simple, like to have simple answers because then a problem can have a simple answer and someone at some point can enact a simple answer. Uh, they like simplicity. They like to think that it's simple because the level of complexity is discouraging. And when you point out the level of complexity, you get answers like, well, if they wanted to, they could fix it. If they wanted to, they could blah, blah, blah. Uh, as if the, the will isn't there, as opposed to the fact that there are uh, procedural and legislative roadblocks, or not even roadblocks, but uh, things that have to be accounted for and satisfied in solving these problems. And it, they say that it's an excuse. People are making excuses to not solve the problem as opposed to, no, the problem is, solving the problem is in process, but it is a process. And people don't want to hear that. They think, they seem to believe that governments can snap their fingers and make everything better. And that's not true because if a government could snap their fingers and make everything better, the government would because it would win them elections over and over and over again. Yeah, and you know some 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 governments have been uh, you know I'm thinking about the last Harper governments. I mean they would come up with simple solutions to all kinds of things. You know some of them were legislative, and it turned out that you know ninety percent of them, ninety five percent of them, 
ended up being struck down because they were against the charter, yeah. um, which they knew they were, but it was a simple solution to, you know, generally criminal or, you know, whether it was Senate reform or um, mandatory minimum sentences or, you know, any of the things that they had thrown out on its ear because, you know, a second year law student would go like, you know, that's against the constitution, but that wasn't important. What was important is coming up with a simple solution that everyone could get behind and then they could blame other people for its failure. And, or what they would do is, you know, the, they would uh, change reality. They would, they would proclaim success that, you know, we came up with a simple solution to poverty and all of a sudden, you know, there's less poverty out there. Well, what they did was they changed, you know, the, the, the uh, statistics and, uh, you know, the benchmarks for, for how you uh, describe poverty. So it looked like it was successful when it's actually going the other way. But they would say, look, our simple solution worked when in fact it didn't. Uh, and that's just, you know, double lying. Uh, you know, it, this, this notion of simple solutions uh, is one that applies to discussions of reconciliation with our Indigenous populations. There are, people don't want to know about the level of complications that exist. It's not all government malfeasance that has ca have caused the situation to take so long to resolve. There is numerous levels, numerous players involved, uh, numerous stakeholders and actors involved. And it becomes, the more people that are involved, the more it, it adds a level of complication. But I think one thing that's not complicated is the fact that residential schools were a mistake. I mean, calling it a mistake is, is very, very mild. They were an atrocity, an attempt at cultural genocide. Uh, these, uh, the, the children taken were not treated as, at least in reports from the people who were actually in the schools, uh, were not treated as, as individuals worthy of, of respect and dignity. Uh, when they died, you know, many died from tuberculosis and, and diseases like that. They were uh, put out in either a, a mass grave or they're put out in graveyards like the one just discovered where they were buried individually but the, uh, the church took down the, the headstones uh, for some reason or other. It's, uh, it's, this, is, this is something that is very, very painful to talk about. And I think that's why some people would rather shy away from talking about it altogether, would rather say that's just in the past and it has no bearing on today. And while the residential schools were closed, I guess, in 96, um, the effects, there's people today who were in residential schools. So it's not in the past. And the, we've never really, as a nation, come to grips with the, what we did with the residential school, uh, school program. And we're at the point now where uh, it's painful to look at. And people who were born, you know, after the, the schools were, were closed or you know, people who were born and had nothing to do with government and had no power. Um, you don't need to feel guilty on a personal level. There's a difference between feeling badly and feeling guilty. Um, I don't feel guilty about what happened with the residential schools because I had no part to play in that. But I do feel very badly that these things occurred, that, that they happened. So uh, I'm sad about it. Uh, I, I, I grieve about it. And it, it's disturbing on so many levels. 
but a lot of people feel like they're being told they have to feel guilty as if they themselves had some part in it and they rightfully say i didn't have any part in this so why should i feel guilty and so they shy away from even feeling badly because they tie the two things together and we all should be feeling badly you know what we feel good when this country does something good we feel good when we accomplish something we feel good good as canadians when, it, when Canada accomplishes something. When Canada falls short or is found to have fallen short in the past, we have to share that as well. Uh, and the best way to share that is to make amends and to make certain, to take lessons from what happened and make certain that we don't do this kind of thing to anybody going forward. Yeah, and you know, and and Canada has has tried to make amends. I mean, some some governments are are more interested in making amends than others. I think the government that we have right now is is very interested in in making amends. Uh, but like you said, you know, this is a you know such a complex problem, and it's been it's been in existence for for hundreds of years. So people who are expecting the simple solution, uh, you know, there just isn't one to this. I mean, in 2006, the government of Canada paid uh, $1.9 billion in compensation to the surviving graduates of the residential schools. I mean, that was that, that that's not to say, look, here's your money, it's over, we don't want to hear about it again. Because the you know, the the report had, you know, all kinds of recommendations about going forward, because it's all about okay, now what? And, you know, that's one of my favorite questions when it comes to people who are outraged about things. I go like, yes, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, now what? How do we move forward? How do we get past this? And, you know, and we said to, in a couple of podcasts back when we talked about the 215 um, uh, bodies that were discovered. It was 251, uh, wasn't it? 200, 215. 215, my mistake. Um, uh, and uh, you know, buried near the residential schools in Kamloops. And you just see this last, just this week, that the, uh, the Catholic order, you know, these residential schools were 70% run by Catholic orders, but the particular Catholic order that ran the Kamloops school just said, okay, you know what, we're going to open up our archives and you can paw around in it. And maybe there's stuff in there that you can find. I think they are going to find that. Uh, and they knew, I think, 51 of the names of the uh, 215 uh, children and teenagers buried near the residential school in Kamloops. Uh, they, they knew about, and they were listed in you know, those on the website and in the, um, and in the, um, the truth and reconciliation report. Um, but, uh, you know, the others, you know, the other 260 odd, uh, 100, 160 odd, you know, there's no names attached to them. I think there are names and they're probably going to find them in the archives, but, you know, and, uh, we knew, uh, because the, uh, the final report of the truth and reconciliation, uh, committee, said that there were, I think they said about 4,000 uh, plus um, uh, children uh, bodies buried in and around residential schools, of, of which a fraction had been identified. And, you know, it's been up, you know, the numbers, I mean, who knows, you know, they, uh, people that for a while said it was, you know, they thought 6,000. And, you know, I, I've seen numbers as high as 15,000 being kicked around. Yeah, but who knows? I mean, it's 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 there. There's no way to 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 know that until you actually start exhuming well, there's, bodies. There's a, there's a lot more to come. Well, oh, but they knew there's a lot more yeah. to come. I mean, because yeah. this is and this is where the historian. You know, I got a history degree. Uh, this is where the historian in me goes. Like, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's uh, you know there are going to be discoveries, and uh, you know, I'm I'm outraged that it happened, but 
I'm, I, I've already been outraged about this because it's part of the 6,000 that we know are out there. You know, it may be seven and a half, it may be 15 by the time we, we're done. Um, but it's, you know, it's a historic fact that this happened and it's been acknowledged. And so what next? And what next is, you know, you have to you know, start exhuming bodies. You have to look through the archives. You have to look through the records and identify these people, identify what they died of through forensic uh, pathology. You know, did they die? Um, and, I, and I think most people agree that that most of them died from from disease, because if you just look at the statistics from that period, just in the general population um, before the age of five, kids were dropping dead right, left, and center just in the general population because life was hard back then and childhood diseases, there, were, there was no cure for it. So people died of typhus and diphtheria and measles and whooping cough and you know infections and smallpox and all these other things. Uh, and that happened across the board. It happened higher in residential schools because you had concentrations of kids, you had poor nutrition generally, you had you know, poor access to medical care, but, but you know, it was, 1800s, no one had great access to medical care. Um, you know, we keep putting sort of this presentism back on it, thinking like, well, you know, they should have had great nutrition. Well, nobody had great nutrition on the prairies back then. Um, you know, no one had uh, defenses against childhood diseases back then. This isn't an excuse. This is just the historical context that this kind of stuff happened in. So it's not surprising that kids died in, in big numbers. Um, um, and, you know, and the tragedy is, of course, that uh, Indigenous children were treated with less respect, with less resources, with more cruelty, and you know, quite aside from the separating them from their, from their parents and 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 the whole aspect of uh, cultural genocide and 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 actually physical genocide, but you know kids died so there and you didn't send you know you buried people where they died back then because quite frankly you couldn't move a body very far uh you know in a hot saskatchewan summer um so people were buried so you know the new one uh the uh, uh that was just announced uh yesterday or it was announced yesterday and came up with the numbers today is a little different than Kamloops. um they, and the actual report i mean the number 751 is being kicked around uh but the they they really think there's uh, they said actually in the report there's definitely over 600 um and they estimate 751 it seems like a pretty precise number but but they really don't know and they're using ground radar ground penetrating radar again but this is slightly different situation than Kamloops because there's adults there. I, what you really have at, at, uh, at uh, and I, I've been trying to pronounce, pronounce the name properly. It, it, it's, uh, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Cow was this. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the cow and first nation uh, that has said it, the, uh, uh, it came out with the, the report and had been doing work because it's about two hours East of Regina. Um, there's adults there. Um, now these are children, not children of residential schools. Um, and there were grave markers at one point for some of the people. So people knew it was a it was a cemetery. It wasn't, you know, a mass grave in the sense that, you know, you think about a popular, uh, in popular idea, you know, a big pit and you just toss everybody in. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, it was a pioneer cemetery. And the problem with it was, 
uh, like I say, you've got adults there. So it wasn't just residential school uh, children who were in it. It was community members. And the school itself passed through hands kind of in an interesting way uh, because the school itself, you know, it started off as a religious school, um, as, as a lot of these did. But then it was bought, <clears throat> excuse me, by the, um, by the federal government. Um, and, uh, and it was bought in you know, like 1970, I think it was. I'm just, just quickly, I had a little note here about it. And now, of course, I can't find it. Um, <laughs> of course but, not. Yeah, but it was, uh, it was bought by, by, the, by the federal government. And then, uh, then in 1981, it was actually transferred entirely to the, the native band. To, to the, 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 the uh, Kawasas, and they ran it for about 15 years. So all this time, the cemetery was out there. At some point, it had markers. At some yeah. point, the markers weren't there anymore. They, they may well have been wood. We think of cemeteries now about like Mount Pleasant or some of the big, uh, yes. the big yeah. cemeteries with, you know, big uh, granite monuments, all that kind of stuff. There would have been wooden crosses probably. And, you know, what happens with a hundred years of worth of wooden crosses, you know, they, they disappear, especially if there's no one there to maintain the cemetery. So, you know, it's, it's still part of the incredible tra tragedy of residential school children, but there are actually uh, pioneer cemeteries that are lost all over Canada. Um, there's, uh, there's one, I, I just was looking it up. There was one on Whitehorse that was found. It was reported in 2018, where they found that half of the 800 graves were unmarked. And mm -hmm. it's a pioneer cemetery. You know, this isn't Aboriginal. This isn't, uh, you know, this is just whoever happened to be in the neighborhood. And, you know, they're buried there between 1900 and the 1960s. Uh, it's uh, just near Whitehorse. And they said that, you know, 400 of them have no grave markers at all and they were because they were probably either poor people or they had wooden markers and people never paid for a stone marker or right. stone markers you know unfortunately you saw this a lot in europe you saw this a lot with jewish cemeteries in in europe where they pulled up you know they, they got rid of all the jews and they pulled up all the uh, all the headstones and and used them as pavers for uh, for building projects yeah um you know and just but but here's a cemetery that really didn't the one in Whitehorse that uh, you know there was no nefarious intent here people were buried there and just forgotten there's so there's there's pioneer bones all over this country because that's what you did with people back then or you buried people in your backyard I know my wife's family who were were pioneers in southwestern Ontario uh, people were buried on their property um, and you know sometimes they moved them to a cemetery once you know, one was established but you did that and you know as time goes by you forgot about people now that's very different than burying people in secret and deliberately uh, trying to erase them from history of course but, but you know the, the the cemetery that were that was just uh, um you know uh, in the news from the uh from the Nkawas, first nation has elements of a pioneer cemetery um, more of a community thing than it was just sort of the dirty secret of the residential school, especially when you consider that the residential school was run by the indigenous community for the last 15 years of its existence. Right. Um, so it's, yes, so, you know, the 751 shocks, and it should shock because it shocks you into action. But historically, there's a lot more going on in this one than there was in the Kamloops one. 
It's, I mean, it's also tragic. Uh, and there's no question about that. And the, I mean, this is sins of the past coming, coming forward. There, I can't think that there's very many people alive today who had agency with regards to the uh, establishment or functioning of residential schools. It, it, it would seem to me that most have probably succumbed to old age at this point in time. So this is their sins coming back to visit on us today. I'm not a big believer in the sins of the father, but I am a believer in the responsibility of the country and the people in the country to do, do right by people who have been wronged by the country. And I don't know what form that should take. I don't have any suggestions for that. It's not my place. Um, but I do think that we, this dialogue, and it needs to be a dialogue. I understand emotions are high on both sides. And I certainly understand the emotions being high on the indigenous people's side. Uh, absolutely. Uh, though we really need to be able to have a dialogue and that might not be possible right now. Uh, maybe it is, but maybe right now the wound is too raw and expecting there to be a reasoned dialogue on both sides might be an unfair expectation. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the individuals involved. I'm assuming that the indigenous leaders that were that are involved in these dialogues are achieved their position due to uh, people recognizing their wisdom and uh, their leadership abilities. But even so, they have to contend with the people they lead. And it's difficult when emotions are riding high. So who knows what, you know, where this is going to go. I mean, one of the interesting things that I saw today, and I'm wondering your view on this, if this is, you think this is going to gain momentum, is people calling for statues of Pierre Trudeau to be torn down because he was in power during residential schools' existence. Well, pretty much every prime minister who, uh, up until uh, until they were disbanded in the 90s was empowered while residential schools were there and every premier as well. Uh, that, you know, this this is sort of the problem. I mean, if you want to use, you know, the example of of, of, of a, another terrible uh, you know, tragedy, you know, with Nazi Germany, of, you know, of a population of 80 million people. There were eight million members of the Nazi Party. There were there's a million members of the SS. There was a, uh, like five million members of the stormtroopers. There was eight million members of the German Army, uh, and people who were part of various party organizations and all the rest uh, who wore a swastika. You know, another twenty million. You're talking about well, about you know, well, and twenty million Hitler Youth, which included uh, you know the, the former Pope uh, Ratzinger. Um, you know, they're at one, at what point do you go like, okay, this, these were not the perpetrators, you know, these were just ordinary people, uh, had, had nothing to do with the Holocaust, uh, you know, at, a, at any kind of, uh, any kind of significant, uh, level. And you just have to draw the line somewhere. I know, you know, Cambodia did a great job, uh, initially after Pol Pot in their own reconciliation, uh, you know, terrible, awful, murderous regime, you know, killed more, uh, I think, I think he killed more people than Hitler. Um, it was, um, you know, it was a, you know, terrible regime. And afterwards, <clears throat> the, the, after they got, you know, Pol Pot left, 
died in exile uh, and the Khmer Rouge kind of faded a bit, but they all went back to their own villages and they had to decide, well, what do we do with these people? And they finally said, you know what, we're going to prosecute a couple of the worst offenders and we can't live our lives under the shadow of this forever. We will reintegrate them into society. We won't put up with, with any of their nonsense, but you know, it won't disqualify them from jobs. It won't, uh, you know, you know, all of that kind of stuff. They did a very successful reintegration of a murderous regime uh, going forward where most people, you know, live, lived and let lived, uh, even though you're living next to people who you know, may have, may have been involved in murdering your neighbors, just because practically that's what they, you know, they, they needed to do as a small country. So, you know, to go back and say, look, and, and we talked about this in our last uh, podcast as well, Canada, was a colony. It was founded as a colony. It was, it was founded as a French colony. Then it was founded as a British colony after the British kicked the French out. And yeah, it, it, our history is a history of colonialism. Everything we do, everything we've touched is as a colony. Every governor general we've had, every prime minister we've had has been about Canada as a colony. So you'll never take the colonialism out of Canada. Um, certainly not out of Canadian history. You can take it out of the attitudes, uh, you know, depending on how you define colonialism, because at the time in the 1880s, the whole idea was of the residential schools and all the rest was to integrate North American Aboriginals into the new nation. You know, and Sir John A. Macdonald was all about uh, integrating um, First Nations into turning them into Canadians as part of his national vision. And, you know, he was very, very specific about doing that. And he thought it was for, for their benefit, because who wouldn't want to be part of this great adventure called Canada, where we have progress and we're, you know, we're an economic powerhouse and we're a breadbasket for the British empire. And we're, you know, holding our own against the Americans and, you know, all, who wouldn't want to be part of that in his mind. Um, and there were a lot of people who sincerely believed that the March of Progress was going to leave behind uh, the Aboriginal people. Uh, you know, this is obviously in the days before we valued other cultures and languages and, and saw value in anything else. They really believed that they were doing a favor to North American Aboriginals because their traditional way of life had been wiped out. There was no buffalo anymore. The Americans made sure that uh, the buffalo were uh, were made extinct as a way of starving. Uh, you know, back then the Indians to death and to put them onto reservations and make them dependent on food. And in Canada, you know, the whole idea of making them dependent on food was a way of controlling them and shaping them into good British subjects. Um, and the, the, the problem, you know, becomes, you know, Canada's history is part and parcel of this whole thing. So, you know, how do you separate it out? And you can't separate it out, but what you have to do is you have to say, well, you know, these are things we did really well. These are things we did really badly. It's all part of our history. Yeah. Uh, but do you, do you think that there will be momentum to, uh, to take down Pierre Trudeau's Trudeau? statues. I'm well. I'm sure. I'm sure someone will. Edgerton Ryerson came down. Uh, you know, Sir Johnny Macdonald has been removed a few places. I mean, how I don't see Pierre Trudeau as being one of the architects of the residential school systems. As a matter of fact, they were closed. Um, um, uh, 
they were in the process of being closed under his tenure. Um, he, you know, he wasn't fond of them particularly, but, you know, he, you know, you can't, you know, a person, uh, especially a prime minister, does an awful lot of things. Um, you know, you see them, you know, now, you know, throwing paint on, on Winston Churchill. Yeah. Uh, you know, Winston Churchill won the Second World War. Yeah. He, had, he was an interesting historical character. He had some real char- uh, personality faults uh, that were you know, pretty glaring um, you know, as a person. You know, brilliant writer, um, interesting statesman. Uh, you know, the Irish have a very different view of them. The Indians have a very different view of them um, uh, because of uh, colonial policy. But history's messy and people are messy. And, you know, do we need to have statues of people as, as, as history? I, you know, I like looking, I, you know, when I travel, I like to go look at statues, but there's a big difference between putting up a statue of Pierre Trudeau because he repatriated the constitution and the charter and he reformed our criminal laws so that it took, uh, you know, um, that uh, it uh, decriminalized uh, homosexual behavior. It, uh, you know, decriminalized uh, abortion. It liberalized uh, divorce. I mean, it's a big, big long list of accomplishments. Well, and he also reformed our immigration system. Yeah, absolutely. That led to the diversity that, uh, that we see now in Canada that we prize. Yeah, so he is a lot more than... Oh, and by the way, he inherited the residential school systems. He, they were tapering off during his, his tenure um, to say like, okay, the only thing we want to remember him for is this thing. And, you know, it's the same with Edgerton Ryerson. Edgerton Ryerson, you know, was actually a, a bit of a lefty radical for his time. Um, he wasn't part of the family compact and he reformed public schools. He thought they should be free. They should have libraries, that teachers should be professionals. And he wrote an, an article um, that said, and by the way, you know, the best thing that uh, best thing for the Aboriginal people would be to put them in residential schools, the way that the British and the Irish and the Scottish put their kids in schools and teach them a skill so they can compete in this great company country that's coming called Canada. Uh, I think he would have been horrified to see how it had turned out. Um, but but, you know, that's the thing that he's, he, you know, that he's popularly remembered for now. And people are much more complicated. Do we celebrate them? That's a very, you know, those statues are very different than a statue of Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee is famous for one thing, and that yeah. is defending the South so slavery could flourish. That was his thing. He's not remembered as a poet. He's not remembered as a statesman for anything else. He's remembered as someone who took up arms to defend slavery. And so when you see a statue of Robert E. Lee or any of those Confederate generals, they're up there because they really loved slavery. When Pierre Trudeau's statue is up there, it's not, it's not up there because he really loved residential schools. It, and even Edgerton Ryerson, his statue was not there because he really loved residential schools. It's there because they made all these other contributions during their lives. Now, right. It's so, you know, you take the good with the bad. There are no saints. Even saints aren't saints. So if you put up a statue of, uh, of uh, you know, only the people who've lived absolutely perfect lives, uh, <laughs> there are no luck. statues. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and some people say there shouldn't be any statues. And that's a whole different, uh, you know, whole different thing. I mean, I, I'm sitting at my desk as we do this. And I've got a, a little statue of Napoleon here that I bought at Napoleon's tomb in Paris. And Napoleon was a, a, just a terrible person. You know, but he's remembered in France and revered in France for bringing in the metric system and the 
code Napoleon system of justice and you know not not to mention the glory of France and the terrible but you know he, he killed tens of millions of people in Europe on his uh, imperial dreams uh, but uh, you know I've got a little statue of him here more as a memento to uh, I'm not particularly a Napoleon file but uh, you know, a memento to my visit to his tomb but you know people especially people who are do big things um, are complex people who often have blind spots and fatal flaws and have made some terrible mistakes as well. And we've got this, as you call it, presentism, where we're framing the past in the present and we're transposing the values and ethics that we have developed and evolved into. We're transposing them and we're, we're judging the past based on that. And there's, there's not a single uh, element of the past, really, that can stand up, you know, can stand that kind of scrutiny. Because no, nothing's we had to get there. that way. Yeah, we had to get to this point. There's evolution. It's, it's like judging whether somebody is capable of, of driving a car uh, by looking back at the fact that they used to crawl when they were babies. Well, you can't possibly operate a motor vehicle because you look at you you were uh, you were a uh, you, you crawled around on the floor like we grew we we start somewhere and we move towards it and the fact that we're able to look back and see how different things were is a good sign that we've made progress it's it's a great you know uh, growth chart in a way of how far we've come as a society but to judge to, to place the values of today, on the context in the past without the past being examined within the context of its times is something that's pernicious and is growing and it never leads to any particular uh, awakening about any issue at all i think that we miss the point when we don't contextualize where who people were what the times were like uh we really need to, to do because you'll get a much different view of what was liberal, because what was liberal back then today would be seen as, as knuckle dragging. But at the time, it was considered liberal. And we have to take that with some respect and say, this person was on the progressive track, but based on where society, general society was at the time, um, they were an outlier, but you can only outlie so far. And that's true even today. I personally think that this business about the Trudeau statue is going to gain momentum because it's uh, people who are on the, the far left uh, dislike Justin Trudeau tremendously, um, which is funny because people who are on the far left tended to like Pierre Trudeau, but people on the far left dislike Justin Trudeau. Uh, people, NDP supporters dislike Justin Trudeau because he stole their thunder and has kept them, you know, perpetually kneecapped since he got elected uh, by being leftish enough to take the soft NDP support away. And I think that people are just bad actors will use this to try to make a statement. So I think there will be paint sprayed on his statue. I think we may see a head cut off. We may see a statue torn down. And it'll be interesting to see what Justin Trudeau's reaction is to that. I admit that I've not really cataloged what his reaction was to the taking down of the Ryerson statue um, or the, the statue of Johnny McDonald 
I don't recall what his, his statement was with regards to that, but I think the fact that I don't remember it indicates yeah, I, it wasn't I don't, blood and thunder. No, I, I don't recall a statement either. There might've been one, but uh, you know, it would be, you know, you know, we have to learn, learn from our past and uh, you know, we, we have to be careful not to glorify people. You know, like I said, we're not glorifying these people because of the bad things they did. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's in some a reason in spite of, yeah, it, and and you know every every politician has has his warts, some of them more than than others. But like you say, I mean, in Pierre Trudeau's case, I mean, he certainly had his detractors while he was alive. Uh, you know, and there's some people who've said things uh, after he died that would never have de- dared say it uh, while he was alive because uh, Pierre would have given him uh, an earful. But you know, he, the, you know, the French uh, Canadians are not big fans either. They see him as a bit of a sellout, and uh, you know, the Conservatives hate him with a passion because of bilingualism and the metric system and uh, and the Charter and all those other things, multiculturalism. Uh, and as you say, the uh, you know on the on the left, the NDP hate him, uh, you know, because he, uh, you know, he he. he you know, he, he stole all their ideas and uh, and and wasn't left enough uh, in in terms of the way he uh, he, he operated uh, while he was prime minister. So you know there is there's 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 a lot of forces lined up against him because you know he was a, during his lifetime a controversial um, and uh, you know an interesting man. Uh, it's but it's it again it's it's hard to separate people out from all of their acts and history books are great for that kind of thing i I think statues make make for terrible history i think they make interesting decorations but you know no one ever really learns too much from a statue from you know a little brass plaque um i mean there are things you know, and I've said this before that, uh, you know, I, I had my tonsils out at uh, Joseph Brandt Hospital. Um, I don't see anyone trying to tear down Joseph Brandt Hospital uh, because Joseph Brandt was a slave owner. He owned 40 slaves, including like a 13-year-old girl who, he, you know, he, he, who he raped regularly. Um, and, uh, you know, Tyendaga, he was, you know, he was a great uh, Mohawk chief. Um, but, uh, you know, history is messy. And when you start tearing down all of these heroes, um, you're really left with not much of anything. So the best thing we can do is understand the humanity and the context and the mistakes that people made. And I think some people who uh, you know would have uh, you know would have made different choices if they knew what the uh, results of their actions were going to be. And again, none of this is defending people who made terrible choices back in history. There are always a few people who see really, really well. I mean, there's a, there's a gentleman, I don't remember his name. He died about uh, 1907, uh, who came out with a report that said the residential schools are terrible. Um, and uh, if I Googled, I could find him. But uh, in Canada, he came up with a, a report and he was very, very clear eyed about what the problem was at that time. But he was definitely in the minority. I mean, you know, the anti-slavers, um, you know, the British uh, anti, uh, the abolitionist movement, there were some people who clearly knew exactly how terrible the institution of slavery was and the slave trade was, but, uh, you know, were they listened to? No, you know, they were a minority until it caught on enough in the public consciousness. And right now, I think we have a government that is very aware, very sensitive of these things, even the provincial governments, I and mean, even the even you know Jason Kenney is throwing money at uh, at exhumations of uh, of burials uh, around residential schools. I mean, that's that's exactly how much trouble he is in right now. That he's willing to throw money at something like this because I don't think he gives two figs about that. And Doug Ford, you know, I think he gave 
it was a 10 million. I think it was, yeah, Jason Kenny gave eight and Doug Ford gave 10 million, which is a drop in the bucket con considering what you have to do in order to, uh, to investigate and exhume and test and all the rest. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they're, this is certainly against type for, you know, for those uh, hard right conservative governments who don't have a lot of time on a general on a general basis for our uh, our uh, first nations but even they know that this is the way that the wind is blowing and it's a good thing that it's blowing this way because it will create more awareness i say it was it was 2006 uh, when the uh, the um, the, the money was paid as a uh, in reparations for uh, for the residential schools and we've had the residential schools you know reports out there for a while it's now you know that's 15 years ago um, and it's, you know, it's still penetrating our consciousness. Um, I say anyone who's been aware of this isn't really surprised, but, uh, maybe it is a catalyst to make people think twice about it, to, um, you know, try to figure out what it is and also understand that there is no fast solution to this. Like we said, you know, even the exhumation of bodies to try to figure out what happened, who's who, uh, like you said, there's no agreement uh, among the indigenous uh, groups about what we do you know whether or not we leave them in place whether it's you know um, against the against the sacred rules to disturb a dead body um, which kind of hobbles you in being able to go forward and figure out who it is and have some closure um, but you know these are things even Justin Trudeau said we're not going to just start you know sticking shovels in the ground and digging stuff up because it's not our place to do that. And we take guidance from the, um, the First Nations who are involved in these things. And the problem is there's not always an awful lot of consensus about how to go on to that next step. There's a lot know, of outrage, but there's not a lot of consensus about what to do next. What do you know? They're human just like the rest of us. Yeah. And uh, multiple opinions and there is no uniformity, uh, you know, the way often ethnic groups are portrayed is that there is some monolith or some uniformity as if they are somehow different creatures than the rest of humanity, uh, where it, we are, as you said, messy. We are, we have different opinions, different agendas, uh, different ethics, and uh, it should be no surprise that's the same amongst the, the First Nations, amongst our Indigenous peoples. I'm curious to see that if this Pierre Trudeau statue issue gains traction and they tear it down or deface it. What Justin Trudeau will say, he's been so muted so far. Would he, would he continue along that track? It, I hope it doesn't come to that, I should say, but people... Well, just, just, just wait till they put up the Stephen Harper statue and we'll see what happens to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, not that there's any threat of this happening, but uh, I wouldn't want a statue of myself put up anywhere because I don't want to be <laughs> crapped on by birds day in and day out. And that's really what comes of statues. You're, no, that's you what, exist that... to have birds crap on you. Well, and that's what Twitter's for too, for, you know, everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good place for us to bring it in for a landing. <laughs> All right, Stephen, thank you very much for your thought-provoking commentary today. 
Well, and uh, I'm, I don't know if we're going to be able to do one next week uh, for Canada Day. So I think it'll be a muted candidate for a lot of people. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, like you said, a day, day to reflect. And it's a day to, you know, think of, uh, you know, the good things about Canada, you know, our tolerance and our rights and responsibilities and the way that, you know, our stature in the international community is uh, one of the leaders in, in peace and in education and health and all those other good things things, but also the failings that uh, we've historically had in the past and the ones that continue to haunt us today and we need to do better with. Yeah, I think that there's that uh, turning Canada Day this year into something that has uh, a greater, not just an unparalleled celebration, but has a greater element of uh, somnolescence, uh, uh, memorializing and uh, remembering these, uh, the Indigenous people who not just suffered under residential schools, but, but have suffered and continue to suffer, uh, taking some time to consider their plight and in, in, in preparation for, for doing better. Uh, there's nothing more Canadian you can do on Canada Day than think about ways to make the country better and uh, recognizing the things we didn't do well in the past. Because unlike our American uh, neighbors, we don't rah-rah to the point where we completely obscure the fact that we have problems. We actually admit problems and we try to fix them. And that's why I think that uh, having a subdued Canada Day where we think about these blots on our history um, is something that is in its own way very much a celebration of Canada. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's, uh, let's uh, say goodbye. Stephen Lawton's can be found on Twitter at, at Stephen Lawton's, which is spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N-L-A-U-T-E-N-S. Uh, we have a Facebook page as well. Feel free to comment there. Um, thank you, Stephen. Oh, oh, well, always a pleasure. And, uh, and, and I'm looking forward to next week. Uh, you're, you've been pretty, you're been a, you've been a busy buddy because uh, you've got your new Music Nation uh, kicking off next week. So good luck with that. My, my goodness, it's next week. <laughs> it's next week. Oh, no. <laughs> you better get busy. What are you doing talking to me? Get there, start working, start yes. editing video. <laughs> we were originally going to launch July 1st. But in, in respect of, of many things, we're now launching July 2nd, um, which that I is next week. Don't don't keep reminding me. <laughs> well, come on, buy a calendar. You know, these are important things. <laughs> There's a reason I don't have one. OK, uh, Stephen, <laughs> well, good luck you. with that. We'll be watching. Thank you very much. Enjoy your time at the cottage. We'll be back in two weeks. And this has been Stephen and Stephen. I'm Stephen Kersner.